This evening we're continuing our overview of the Old Testament book titled Job. With this as the focus, let's open our Bibles to Job chapter 3. And as you make your way to the third chapter of Job, I want to take a moment to put our text back into its context. It'll first help us to remember that the book of Job was probably written before the days of Abraham. And some scholars even believe that the book was written prior to the days when Nimrod built the Tower of Babel. And if so, then this book was written around 2,000 years before Moses received the Mosaic Covenant. What this means then is that the book of Job was actually the first book of the Bible to be written. And while it's true that the Lord led Moses to create a written record of the the events that happened before the birth of Job, it's also true that the book of Job was written long before Moses wrote the book of Genesis. And what this means then is that Job's point of view, his perspective wasn't based on a study of the Old Testament. He didn't have the Old Testament scriptures, let alone the New Testament that we enjoy today. And listen, The same can be said for the three men who came to console him. And in order to understand why three men came to console Job, it'll help you to remember that it was back in chapter one. That's when we learned about that day when the Lord allowed Satan to go and test the integrity of Job's faith. As a result, Job lost his wealth, he lost his workforce, and he lost all of his children all in a single day. But rather than cursing God, Job responded with incredible faith as he declared, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What incredible faith and and what great perspective. It was at the same time, though, when Satan decided that he wasn't about to give up. And and so he went before the Lord again uh, again, and God gave him permission to go and afflict Job with, you know, by, by placing boils all over his body. And, you know, it was itchy, I'm sure. And he was scratching those boils with the shard of a broken uh, piece of pot. And, and, and his wife just came out and encouraged him to go ahead and curse God and die. She was done with him, but rather than cursing the name of the Lord, Job challenged his wife as he declared, shall we indeed accept good from God and shall we not accept adversity? Once again, Job maintained the integrity of his faith. Well, shortly thereafter, Job was visited by his three friends who heard all about the hardships that that he had been enduring, and this included Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite. And according to the author of this book, these guys came uh, to mourn with their friend. And uh, not only that, but they also wanted to comfort him during this time of great distress. And you know, after arriving, they sat down with him on the ground for seven days and seven uh, nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw the incredible amount of grief that he was suffering. Well, as we continue to now make our our, our way through the bulk of this book, it's important for us to remember that Job and his friends, uh, they're, uh, you know, going to be over the next many chapters, they're going to be discussing many things uh, about good and evil. Not only that, but they're going to be sharing their opinions about sin and sickness and, and God's plans and purposes as they attempt to comfort Job with their, uh, let's just say, questionable counsel. And as we continue to make our way through this challenging book, it's important for us to remember that you know, everything that's recorded in the Bible isn't necessarily true. Whoa. Now, before you pick up stones and stone me to death as a heretic, I, I want to assure you that everything in the, in the Bible is, is recorded accurately. 
You know, everything recorded in the Bible is accurate. And, and I believe that the original autographs of, of the books that we find in the Bible are infallible and inerrant. Simply put, I believe that the Bible is the word of God and that we've received this book according to his providential plan. So I'm not questioning whether or not this is the word of God. And yet at the same time, listen, there are statements in the Bible that are recorded accurately and yet doctrinally incorrect. What do I mean by that? Well, one example is found in the book of Genesis. That's where we find Eve. She's telling the serpent that God forbid them from touching the forbidden fruit. Did God forbid them from touching the forbidden fruit? No. He forbid them from eating the forbidden fruit. He never said anything about touching it. The Lord never forbid them from touching the fruit, which is growing on the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He simply told Adam that they weren't allowed to eat the fruit, and in the day they ate it, they would surely die. So yeah, Eve said something that's recorded accurately, and yet what she said was incorrect. Another example of this is found in the book of Ecclesiastes. You know, when anybody comes to you quoting the book of Ecclesiastes, you got to understand that it's probably going to be wrong what they say. And the reason why is because the book of Ecclesiastes is basically this rich King Solomon complaining about all the things that he examined and, and, and explored in life. He, he's talking about all of the philosophies that he entertained over the course of his life. And this includes the idea that God tests the sons of men so that we might understand that we're no better than the animals. Is that true? Are we no better than the animals? Well, of course, we're the special creation of God. We're, we're the image bearers of God. He bro, uh, breathed his breath uh, in, into Adam and, and, and gave life in that sort of way. So, yeah, yeah, we're better than the animals. Sorry, Peter, but it's true. And yet, King Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes basically says that, yeah, God tests us to help us to understand we're no better than the animals. He also floated the idea that both humans and animals will simply die and return to the dust of the earth, as if there's no afterlife. Now, these ideas are accurately recorded, and yet they're also faulty philosophies that, that uh, we should not uh, you know, embrace as good doctrine. It's not good doctrine. Well, listen, in similar fashion, the book of Job is filled with similar statements that are accurately recorded and yet doctrinally incorrect. And, you know, as we continue to make our way through this book, we're going to read many things that are accurately recorded, and yet we're going to have to re recognize that these, these things uh, written in the book of Job, many things are doctrinally wrong. And the proof of my point is because God tells us this. As a matter of fact, when we finally get to Job chapter 38, where God comes along and interrupts the, uh, the, the dialogue of these individuals, one of the first things that he says in Job, in Job chapter 38, he says this, he says, who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Wow. <laughs> yeah, God's going to show up in chapter 38 and rebuke these guys because they're saying a bunch of hogwash. From this, we see that there's a great deal of counsel within this book, which is in conflict with the divine wisdom of God. And, and to be fair to Job and his friends, remember, uh, you know, they couldn't consult the Bible because the Bible had yet to be written yet. And, and so they couldn't just, you know, take what they were saying, compare it to the word of God and see if it was correct. Thankfully, we've received the fullness of God's word, which enables us to test all ideas. And as we continue to make our way through this challenging book, we're going to engage in a critical examination of the, the counsel and the conversations that take place there in the house of Job. And as we test all things, we're going to reject what is false, and we're going to hold fast to that which is true. 
Well, with this as the goal, let's turn our attention back to the book of Job. I, I want to turn your attention back to Job chapter 3. We'll begin reading at verse 1. Here we read, After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. Now, we got, we got to stop here. You know, rather than cursing God, Job instead cursed the day of his birth. In other words, you know, he basically turned to his friends after seven days of silence and, and, and basically said, I wish I'd never been born. Job wished he had never been born. And as, and as we consider the way that Job was suffering both emotionally from the loss of his kids and physically from all the boils, I'm sure that we can understand the reason for this response. I'm sure that we can commiserate with Job right now and recognize that this was the worst time of his life. And I have no doubt that there are some here tonight who have wrestled with the same sort of thoughts, thoughts that lead us down a dark path of nihilism. And for the sake of clarity, existential nihilism is the philosophical theory that life has no intrinsic meaning or value. And listen, those who come to the conclusion that life has no meaning or that life has no value, well, they oftentimes arrive at that place where they wish they'd never been born, that non-existence would be better than existing. Sadly, those who begin to entertain these nihilistic thoughts, they also begin to see suicide as the best plan for avoiding further pain and suffering. That being the case, I want to spend some time tonight examining the nihilistic thoughts that Job was wrestling with. And as we do, well, it's my hope that we might all realize that our lives have incredible purpose and, 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 our, and our lives have value. And yes, even on, the, on those days that when we're suffering the most. With that, I want to pick up our study of Job chapter 3. Here we find Job. He's continuing to share the nihilistic thoughts that, has, uh, that began to fill his mind. And if you would look with me there at verse 2. Here we learn that Job spoke and said, May the day perish on which I was born, and the night in which it was said, A male child is conceived. May that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor the light shine upon it. May darkness and the shadow of death claim it. May a cloud settle on it. May the blackness of the day terrify it. As for that night, may darkness seize it. May it not rejoice among the days of the year. May it not come into the number of the months. Wow, I mean, Job was the original emo. You know, he's just completely depressed here, and, and for good reason again. And, and he's now declaring his deep displeasure with life. And while it's true that he was not willing to curse the name of the Lord, which is a good thing, he's not willing to blame God, it's also true that he was quick to curse the day of his conception. And in light of these verses, we can see that Job believed that his life began on the day of his conception. I just want to point that out you know, briefly. He, he's not saying that his life began at birth. He's saying that his life began at conception. And that's what we ought to believe as well. That life begins with conception. Therefore, abortion is wrong. Well, back on task here, he, he, Job here is wishing for the day that he would be scrubbed from the annals of history. And rather than seeking the Lord so that he might understand the purpose and the pain that he was enduring, Job wished that God would have stopped the very day of his conception from ever occurring. He wanted the Lord to blot that day from the calendar so that it might not ever again be counted among the rest of the days of the year. 
He he didn't want a birthday party. He wanted his birthday just gone. With all this in mind, Job had quickly come to the conclusion that the unconsciousness of non-existence would be better than the consciousness of existence if pain and suffering is going to be the way of life. In this way, he was allowing the faulty philosophy of, uh, of nihilism to lead him down this path towards absurd, uh, absurdism. And absurdism is just another way of saying that human existence is simply absurd because it's nothing more than purposeless pain. Now, in light of his example, we can see that those who begin to embrace existential annihilism will begin to embrace also absurdism. Or in other words, those who begin to believe that life has no intrinsic meaning or innate value will tend to embrace the belief that human existence is simply absurd because life is filled with meaningless misery and purposeless pain. And with that being the case, it's no wonder that existential nihilism leads many to entertain suicidal thoughts. To further grasp this issue, I want to continue to consider Job's complaints here. So if you would look with me again here at Job chapter 3, I want to pick up our study beginning at verse 7, because here Job declares, Oh, may that night be barren. May no joyful shout come into it. May those curse it who curse the day, those who are ready to arouse Leviathan. May the stars of its morning be dark. May it look for light but have none and not see the day dawning of the day, because it did not shut up the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide sorrow from my eyes. Now here in these verses we find Job, he's calling upon those who curse Leviathan to then turn around and curse the day of his deception. Now what is this Leviathan character? Well, just to be clear, Leviathan is a sea creature which was feared by those who sailed the seven seas. As a matter of fact, it's in the 104th Psalm where the psalmist declares, see the ships sailing along and Leviathan which you made to play in the sea. Now, in light of this, we can see how Job was calling upon those who cussed like sailors to curse the day of his conception, much like they cursed Leviathan. And after calling upon those who curse the creatures at the bottom of the sea, after calling upon the, the sailors to, to curse the day of his birth, then Job turns his attention to the stars. And, and, and the reason why is because, you know, the stars continued on course rather than stopping the day when he was born. I like the way that the scholars created the New Living Translation rendered verse 10. They put it like this, curse that day for failing to shut my mother's womb for letting me be born to see all this trouble. Here again, we find another classic example of existential nihilism. You see, Job was was loving his life when everything was hunky-dory. He was loving his life when he had all of his kids and when he had all of his property and all of his sheep and all of his camels, when he had, you know, all of his wealth. When he had all of his health, life was great. But then after experiencing the untimely death of his kids together with the pain of the boils in his body... Well, it didn't take long for all this turmoil and all all this trouble to take him down this dark path of depressing despair. In similar fashion, there are many today who embrace existential nihilism after experiencing the trials and the troubles of this world. Maybe they had a happy childhood and at some point in time, they experienced troubles and turmoils and next thing you know, they're thinking, ah, wish I'd never been born. Next thing you know, they're on this fast path towards absurdism. 
You know, one reason for this is because, you know, most of us struggle to understand why a good and loving God allows us to suffer in these sorts of ways. We start asking those unanswerable questions. Well, if God is good, why does he allow this? God could have stopped it. Why didn't he? God could have spared me from this. Why didn't he? And these questions lead us down this, this path of despair, and we start you know, thinking that, well, life must be meaningless. If God doesn't care to step in and save me, if God doesn't care to step in and, and help me, well, then what's the point of living? Many conclude that God must not be good, and therefore life must be meaningless. Others be- begin to believe that there's no such thing as a God. You know, if, 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 if there's no good God that's helping me out of this problem, then God must not exist. Because that's easier to believe than a God that allows these things to happen. And down this path of there is no God, well, next thing you know, our life is meaningless. It's just meaningless moments of pain and suffering. So what's the point in living at all? Sadly, this philosophy leads many to conclude that suicide is the best way to avoid these meaningless moments of pain and suffering. And with that being the case, well, we ought to be concerned about the data that helps us now to see that the youth of today are not only embracing existential nihilism by, you know, in, in great droves, but, but listen, the rate of suicide is also increasing amongst the same age group. According to several studies, nihilism is becoming more and more popular among American teenagers today, and at the same time, there's been a 36% increase in the rate of suicide amongst those who are 10 years old to 24 years old. 36% increase. And seeing how nihilism is a philosophy that causes people to think that their life is meaningless and worthless, well, then it seems obvious to me that there's a clear connection between the increasing acceptance of nihilism and the increasing rate of teenage suicides here in America. Knowing that nihilism is becoming a pervasive problem here in our country, we would all do well to learn how to dismantle this deceptive philosophy. And with this as the goal, I want to pick up our study of Job chapter 3. If you would look with me here, beginning at verse 11. Here, Job goes on to ask this. He says, why did I not die at birth? Why did I not perish when I came from the womb? Why did the knees receive me or why the breasts that I should nurse? For now I would have lain still and been quiet. I would have been asleep. Then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who built ruins for themselves or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not hidden like the stillborn child, like infants who never saw the light there the wicked cease from troubling and there the weary are at rest there the prisoners rest together they do not hear the voice of the oppressor the small and greater there and the servant is free from his master Now, here in these verses, we find Job, he's continuing to curse the day of his conception. And as we consider the content of his complaint, we must not fail to notice that Job was embracing a false dichotomy as he insists that he prefers, you know, his belief in soul sleep to the moments of misery that he was suffering as if, like, these are the only two options. Either soul sleep, or I'm unconscious, or pain and suffering without end complete false dichotomy, and yet he's completely bought into it. 
With this in mind, let's take a moment to consider Job's concept of death here. If you would notice again in verse 11, here he describes the the death of a child as uh, that which perishes. And then Job expands on this idea of death there in verse 13 as he refers to the way that he would have lain still and been quiet as a person who is asleep. This sounds a lot like the idea of soul sleep, which is to say that the deceased person just remains unconscious as they're laid to rest in the grave. Then in verses 14 through 19, Job seems to suggest that this is the state of every single deceased person alike, including kings and counselors of the earth, as well as the princes who have great wealth. And he also attributes the same outcome to the wicked and the weary, as well as to the prisoners and oppressors, not to mention the small and the great and the servant and the master. It's like he has this idea that everyone just goes to sleep and, and, and that's it. No, ma- no matter your lot in life, everybody ends up in this state of soul sleep, and you're just unconscious, and so at least you're not suffering anymore. Now, as we consider his point of view, you might like to know that the Lord eventually showed up in order to correct this concept of the grave. As a matter of fact, it's again in Job chapter 38. There the Lord shows up, interrupts the conversation, and challenges Job by asking this. He says, have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the doors of the shadow of death? He's basically saying, Job, you're you're talking a lot about death. What do you really know about it? You're saying a lot of things that you don't know anything about. The Lord was simply exposing Job's ignorance about the afterlife. and, and, And yet Job was convinced that the grave was this place where everyone escapes pain and suffering. And yet, listen... Not only did God show up and challenge his belief system, but then the Lord Jesus shows up later and assures us that not everyone goes to the same place. As a matter of fact, it's in Luke chapter 16 where Jesus describes two different destinations. He does this by declaring there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus full of sores who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores, which is a detail I'm always just just amazed at here. It's like, why? Why does that need to be there? But it's true. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. Being in torments in Hades, he lift up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Here in these verses, we find Christ Jesus. He's describing the afterlife. And, you know, of course, this is, you know, a, a pre-resurrection of Jesus description here. You know, those who are in Abraham's bosom have now been released and they're in paradise with, with the Lord. But, but at this point in time, prior to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we find these two compartments of Sheol, one compartment named Abraham's bosom, the other Hades. And Lazarus was there peacefully resting in Abraham's bosom while this unnamed rich man was suffering in the torment of Hades. And what this means then is that this this man in Hades, he was awake. He's not sleeping. He's not unconscious. He's, He's awake and aware of his torment. As a matter of fact, it's described as torments, plural. 
And not only is he awake and aware of being in torments, but he recognizes that there's no way for him to escape, which is why he asks Abraham to send Lazarus to him. I want to consider how Jesus goes on to describe this situation. It's here in Luke 16, beginning at verse 24, where we learn that this man cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Here we find the Lord Jesus helping his audience to understand that there is no escape from the everlasting torment of those who end up in Hades. Therefore, listen, if your dead relative shows up in your bedroom in the middle of the night, guess who they aren't? They're not your deceased relative. It's not grandma. It's fallen angel masquerading as your grandma. And you need to pray the blood of Jesus Christ over your room. The minute a person dies, they go either to be in the presence of the Lord, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, or they go to Hades as they wait the final judgment. And there's no way for those in Hades to escape. There's no way for for them to get out of this torment. Realizing this, the rich man then begs Abraham to send Lazarus to warn his brothers. It's here in Luke 16 where we find this man declaring, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets. In other words, he says, hey, they've got the Bible. They can learn about this. This man who is suffering in the torments of Hades is begging Abraham to send Lazarus back to warn his brothers about Hades. And in light of his desire, we would all do well to to realize that even the people in hell don't want other people to come there. The people who end up in hell don't want anybody else to come there. And with that being the case, we would all do well to warn our unbelieving loved ones about the everlasting torment that's eventually going to be poured out on those who reject Jesus Christ. And parents, please trust me when I tell you that the devil and his demons are using current trends and even friends to lead our youth down the philosophical path of nihilism. You see, if the enemy can convince them that their life is meaningless and has no purpose, well, then it just takes a few tragedies and trials to to push them over the edge by convincing them that, you you know, if this is all that life is, if life is just filled with pain and suffering, then suicide is the best solution. And it's sad that so many kids are, are, are being duped into this line of thinking. There is no hyperbole when Jesus tells us that the enemy has come to kill and to steal and to destroy. 
That is a reality that we live with. And you better believe that the devil and his demons will do everything they can to kill our kids and destroy our families. That being the case, we need to help our kids to realize that their life is not meaningless and that there is purpose in the pain that the Lord is allowing. That the path of nihilism is it's just empty philosophy and it's a lie. And instead, we need to help them to understand that there is great meaning to the life that the Lord has given to us. With this as the focus, I want to take one last look at the complaint that Job presented here in our text tonight. If you will, let's pick up our study of Job chapter 3, beginning at verse 20. Here Job asks, Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter of soul, who long for death but it does not come, and search for it more than hidden treasures? who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they can find the grave. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden and whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes before I eat, and my groanings pour out like water. For the thing I greatly feared has come upon me, and what I dreaded has happened to me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest." trouble comes. Here in the final verses of this chapter, we find Job, he's continuing to complain. He's now struggling to understand why God just won't let him die. I guess Job was a man who, you know, was unwilling to commit suicide. And yet he's wondering, why is God allowing me to suffer in this sort of way? And why is God, you know, causing me to continue living when I just want to die? He was longing for the day of his death. And as we consider this complaint, I can't help but to think about my own mom. You see, my mom physically wasted away as cancer consumed her body. And as many of you already know, you know, my mom was a born-again believer. She was praying for healing. She had bought into the whole word-faith movement and these sorts of things and believed that her words were containers of power and these sorts of things, and they were claiming healing and all these sorts of things. And, you know, she eventually died. Now, it's true that the Lord could have healed her with, with just a, a supernatural touch. And the Lord could have just healed her in, in, in a single moment. It's also true that he could have healed her by simply calling her home to heaven sooner than he did. From my finite perspective, you know, either of those two options would have been better. You know, heal her now or let her come to heaven now. But either way, looking at her suffering on this sickbed is, is just... Horrific. And yet he continued to withhold healing in either direction there. He allowed her to continue enduring intense pain and suffering as the cancer consumed her body. In order to understand why, I want to take a moment to point out that the Lord ended up using my mom during that period of her life when she was on her sickbed to lead an untold number of people to the cross of Christ. Every person that would come to the sickbed to see her, every person that would come to counsel her, every person that would come to to check on her, family members, friends, it didn't matter. My mom was preaching the gospel to them, and people were getting saved. It's amazing. And in this way, we can see how the Lord uses our pain and suffering to help others escape the eternal torments of Hades. 
He allows us to endure a, a season of suffering so that in the midst of that, some might get saved and, and saved from everlasting suffering. It's precisely the point that Paul's making in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. There he declares this. He says, we are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. That the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. Christian, listen, the Lord has a perfect purpose in the pain that he permits. He has a supernatural reason for the suffering that he allows. And while the enemy will come along and say, there's no, there's no point in any of this. The, it's all meaningless. You're just suffering you know, these meaningless moments of pain and misery without any real reason. And God is just a big meanie who's not bailing you out of it. And yeah, that's what the enemy wants you to believe. And, and it causes us to start questioning the goodness of God. And the person who starts questioning the goodness of God, well, it's not long before they're denying him. And, and it's not long before they're on the path of nihilism, which results in absurdism. And possibly suicide. Therefore, rather than questioning the goodness of God every time we get sick, let's maintain a proper perspective by making sure to remember that the Lord just might be using our trials and our troubles as a catalyst to help others come to the cross of Christ. We'll continue to watch all this play out, but the, the final proof of my point is fine. It's found in the final chapters of this book because it's there where we, where we find the Lord finally showing up and presenting himself to Job and to his friends in an incredible way. It was the suffering that Job experienced that brought his friends together to begin to try to figure all this out. And at the end of the day, they experience God in this supernatural way as he shows up and begins to interview Job. Listen, rather than allowing the pain and the suffering of this world to lead us down a path of despair and depression, let's use that pain and let's, let's look at that suffering that, that we experience while we're here in this world Let's, let's allow it to become an inspirational incentive that motivates us to spend more time with our Savior. If you're experiencing pain and suffering tonight and you don't know why, well, listen, you might not ever know why on this side of heaven. The Lord might not ever answer the why question, but is he still not good? And does he still not have an infinite reason for whatever he is allowing? With that, I encourage you, let your pain and your suffering be that driver that brings you back to the Lord to press into him even harder, to trust in him even more. And in this way, we'll be strengthened by the grace of God as he helps us to endure every single difficulty until we're in his presence forevermore. Let's pray.